You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament it is um, about halfway. You open your Bible up about halfway, you'll see the Psalms. Keep going to the right, past Proverbs, and right there's Ecclesiastes. If you get to... Uh, Song of Solomon or um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those guys, you need to hang a left. If you uh, don't have your Bible with you, the text is in your, your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, like I said earlier, there's one on the back table. I'd love for you to have that. It's our gift to you. Uh, either way, it's going to be really good for you to have the, the Scripture in front of you as we, as we walk through it this morning. Okay? If you're visiting with us this morning, and many of you are, welcome again, uh, we are at the beginning of a like towards the beginning, we're a few weeks in, but we're still at the beginning of a nine-month series in which we're seeking to address a quest that you and I engage in day in and day out, the search for meaning. This isn't a new thing. It's not as if like the disruption of modernism somehow created something that wasn't there before in the last 40 or 50 years. An entire book of the Bible written thousands of years ago walks us by the hand through this quest. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's the book that we're taking this time to study. And this week, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, we come to a very popular thing to look for meaning in. Pleasure. You know the lines, right? Feels good, do it. It's a good bumper sticker. Uh, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Right? These are, these are the things we, uh, we say to ourselves, and we do that because the autonomous individual search for pleasure is a core value in our culture. It's a core value. It's not just a peripheral idea. It's like the is the core of what we think makes us human. Being able to search and make ourselves happy. But can it provide meaning? That's the question we take like we've done with all of our questions to the text this morning. So if you have your place in the book of Ecclesiastes, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. Uh, I'm going to be reading Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. And this is God's word, friends. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and of provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered that all, my, all that my hands had done and the toil that I had that I, sorry, that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. God's word, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, with whatever we've come into this room, uh, we're going to lay it before your feet right now and ask that by your Holy Spirit you would come and you would open our hearts, open our ears to hear. There are many things that distract us, whether those things are... Um, internal or external, whether they are cares, concerns, or pleasures. We ask that your word would come forward, that Jesus, that you and your cross would be at the forefront, that I would be in the rear, and that, Lord, you would, you would preach your gospel to us now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. One of the more humorous and disturbing images from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you will be familiar with that book, others with the movie. But one of the more disturbing and humorous images is, um, is when Edmund runs across the White Witch for the first time, the White Queen, as he knew her then. right? And, and um, he comes before the White Queen, and he's scared. And she basically, after learning a little bit about who he is and the fact that he has siblings, three siblings to be exact, uh, she begins, she basically tries to endear him to herself, telling him to ask for whatever he'd like, and she'd deliver it. And so he asks for Turkish delight, which means nothing to any of us, right? Turkish delight apparently was a, it was a, a kind of a candy, I guess you would call it. It was like a, a gel, flavored gel-based thing with some nuts in it, confectioner sugar on it. Sounds terrible to me, but in England, in the 19th century, it was all the rage with the upper classes. And, uh, and so Edmund is so taken with Turkish delight after having some that he is willing to give up his siblings to the white witch for it. And as her little dwarf friend tells him, it's his yummies, right? He, he wants to have his yummies. And that's really humorous until we start to think about it, right? Because what Edmund's doing is what we all do. All he's doing is looking for his hit. He's looking for his hit, always convinced that the next one will finally give us what we're looking for. But can it? Or maybe, maybe it's not the actual getting of the hit itself. Maybe it's the refusal of the hit. We can, we can say, no, I'm not going to have that. That's, that's where we can find meaning. This is, this is what our text addresses this morning. The idea that our next hit of pleasure will actually produce something that can can give structure and meaning to our lives. So we're going to be looking at this text in three ways. As always, there's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at the pursuit of pleasure. We're going to look at the, pl- the promise of pleasure. And then finally, we're going to look at its purpose, okay? Its pursuit, its promise, and its purpose. Let's start by looking at the pursuit of pleasure and how the teacher sets the pursuit. Look down at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. He says this. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, stop there. If you were here last week... You'll remember, and if you weren't here last week, you can always podcast the thing if you really want to. But uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember that the, the teacher that we're looking at, this, this guy who calls himself the preacher, the son of David, that this guy last week looked to wisdom to find meaning, which would make sense because he's writing a book that claims to be wise. So he's looking to wisdom, and what he found was that wisdom didn't do it. It couldn't, it couldn't do it. It couldn't do it for him. And so he says to himself, and that's what he means, I said in my heart, like the heart in, in uh, biblical language is the center of your being, right? It's not just where you 
where you get sappy at certain movies. It's the center of your being. And, and he says to his heart, heart, uh, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And so what he's saying there, the word test in the original, it, it means an investigation. It's not, like, it's not like a test, like a spelling test, of which I just say those words and all of a sudden, <laughs> little aside, my, my, my family and I went to the Frontier Culture Museum on, on uh, Friday, and they were, um, you go to the old schoolhouse, and there was some dude doing literally like a spelling bee with a bunch of visiting kids that were there, and I, I almost broke out into hives. I had to leave. Anyway, that, trauma. Uh, and the point is this. He, he's doing an investigation. And, and what, is, what, what this word communicates, it's meant to denote the verification of a claim. In other words, pleasure makes a claim, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to test it to see if it actually works. It's an experiment. The teacher is conducting an experiment to see if pleasure can meet its promises. But keep going. He says, but behold, this was also vanity. Now, I know everyone in this room uses the word behold a lot. Behold, it is I. You come home from work. Behold. The word in the, that he's using here means that something unexpected was discovered. In other words, the, the promise makes a, or the, the pleasure makes a promise. He's going to test that promise, but he assumed that it would be able to deliver. Why? Because all of us assume pleasure is going to deliver on his promises. We all assume it. But something unexpected happened. It was vanity. The discovery was that pleasure was also meaningless. Now, let me remind us what that means. Because you and I, we hear meaningless and we think trivial or we think uh, pointless. That's not what's communicated here. The word means something vaporous. Um, Something that seems to have substance that doesn't. It's kind of like if you've ever seen someone blow actual smoke rings, okay? Not like someone who just tries it, but like actually can blow a smoke ring. You see it and you're like, it's almost like you could reach out and grab the thing. But if you try, nothing. That's what this word is meant to communicate. It's something that gives the impression of substance, but it can't deliver. In other words, he isn't saying that pleasure is pointless. It's not pointless. It's not... not, uh, in that sense, meaningless. It's just that it can't deliver on its promises. If you remember back a few weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about it in terms of ultimacy, right? Pleasure is a good thing, but when we make it into an ultimate thing, it loses all of its meaning. It becomes meaningless. And this is what he's getting at by wondering what use pleasure is. His conclusion, which he's gonna, going to work out, is that pleasure cannot deliver on its promises. Okay? Now... My guess is, is that most of us in here are really skeptical of that. Now, and you, may, you may assent, right? Yes, of course, I believe pleasure cannot deliver on its promises. But your day-to-day life doesn't bear that out. And neither does mine. And so, like a good teacher, our teacher will uh, show us how this works, okay? And that's why, that's why the next few verses lay out all these options that our teacher tried. The first one is drink. Look down at verse 3. He basically, he says this in verse 3. I tried using alcohol. Now, I kept my mind. My mind was fully engaged, so don't worry, okay? I love that part. It's like, I wasn't sloppy, so I didn't understand what was going on. Okay, he's talking about drinking, okay? And for some of us here, this is, this is very real, right? Because some of us in this place do the same thing. Now, notice what I'm not saying. (laughs) What I'm not saying is that we drink. Jesus drank. Sorry. He did. That's not what he's talking about here. What what he's talking about is the way you and I like to feel uh, with a few drinks in us. And so we pursue that. We pursue it. We chase it. 
constantly looking to the next drink, that next craft beer, that next glass of fine wine. You know, I, I just need to take the edge off. It just helps me relax. You know, I just, I just need a little to relax a little when I come home. It's been rough. I have a really stressful job. It helps me sleep at night. I just, I just need a little bit. It helps me to get to sleep. And I, you know, you don't want me tossing and turning. I'm going to be grumpy when I wake up in the morning. Like, is Now, the reality is that for many of us, we say that we have control, that we can stop whenever we don't really need it. I find it really interesting that the teacher in this passage, like he, he links this idea of drink. You look down at verse 3. He says, after his little proviso about his heart still guiding him with wisdom, he says, how to lay hold on folly. You notice that? It's like grasping at craziness. And we think we're in control. <laughs> the point is that one of the ways that we seek meaning out of pleasure is to have that sweet feeling of forgetfulness that comes with a few drinks. But he doesn't end there, though. Look down at verses 4 to 6. This is where he talks about stuff. Because for some of us, drinking isn't an issue. We don't like the taste of it. Uh, or if we do, we certainly don't like the way it makes us feel, so we don't, we don't bother with it, right? I know some of us are like that. Okay, cool. Drinking's not an issue for us, but we are convinced that if we had a nice house, maybe a vacation spot, a really beautiful property, well-manicured grass... I can't relate to that one at all. Okay, you've been to my house. We think that if we think that this is the case, that our lives would have meaning. And so the teacher says, he explores that too. He builds stuff. Lots of stuff. Houses, gardens, uh, makes pools and vineyards. He's, he's planting fruit trees. He's, he's got lots of stuff. Now, the truth is that many of us don't see this one coming. What do you mean? What do you, what do you mean lots of stuff is wrong? Like, we, we don't see it coming because in our culture we've... This, this is like... This is the point of life. Right? Around here we call it the middle class dream. Right? The idea that as long as you're on an upward trajectory, your house keeps getting bigger. Like, as long as I keep getting a bigger house, a nice... Now, we don't want to step down. We don't want to... Go downward, okay? We're, we're on an upward path. We need more, a bigger house, more toys, etc. That'll, that'll do it if we just pursue that kind of, of stuff. But maybe stuff isn't your issue. You're not into possessions, right? You don't really want possessions, but what you do want is you want a nice, a nice well-padded bank account. <laughs> Look down at verses 7 to 8, because the teacher says this. He says, I... I bought male and female slaves, had slaves born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anywhere before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. What, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that this dude was flat out loaded. Loaded, okay? Um, the purchasing of many slaves. Now, we're, 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 uh, uh, that has such negative connotations in our culture that we get morally repulsed at that. So you have to go back into the, the, the day and try and understand what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that he had staff at his house. Staff, lots of them. Lots of staff. I mean, you, maybe you can kind of imagine, I doubt, I doubt any of us, but maybe some of us can kind of imagine the idea of like, okay, you know what? Once a year, it'd be really nice to hire somebody to come in and get all the nooks and crannies in my house. You know what I mean? We're talking about dude had live-in staff. He had 
herds and flocks. Again, some of us are, some of you are farming, farmers in here, and that, that you kind of equate with that. But you understand, in an agrarian society, having gold is good, but you can't eat it. If you get a drought, if things go bad, nobody wants your gold. But if you had flocks and herds, you are rich. And then he says, I had silver and gold, the, the treasure of kings and provinces. Kings means um, tribute. In other words, he was so powerful a ruler that other, other nations gave him money so that he would be their friend. Okay, that's cool. And then and of provinces, that's, he's, he's collecting taxes, right? They did that in biblical times too. I know that some of us are like... That can't be righteous. Uh, it, it happened, okay? So what, all this is about the fact that he is stinking rich. This dude's savings account is large. And he can afford a very luxurious lifestyle. And he does afford it and does it. Why is he detailing this? Why is he laying all this out? You think it's to brag? No, it's not to brag. He's doing this because you and I wouldn't believe that riches couldn't really fulfill us unless... Someone who actually had been there stood up and said, look, I had it. Don't matter. So he's talked about drink. He's talked about stuff. He's talked about money. And then finally he talks about sex. Look down at the, verse, the end of verse 8. He says this. You know, he talks about having singers, which I didn't even talk about. Dude had, he had like Jay-Z paid in his house. And I'm like, who? Really? Okay, anyway. He talked, so, but now he's talking about the fact that he had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, scholars will tell you, most of us don't even really know what a concubine is in the first place, right? But scholars will tell you that, that word for concubine, that only occurs this one place in all of Scripture. And, and so it's hard to understand what exactly they mean. But what they do point out is that where this word comes from, okay? This word that they've translated concubine, it's the closest thing they can come to figure out what it means, derives from the word in, in Hebrew, in the original, for breast. Okay? And scholars will tell you that what's actually going on here is this is a kind of a crass way of describing women according to their body parts. A similar thing is done in the book of Judges to talk about women at the end of the book of Judges, just done using another part. Okay? And why? Like, why is he talking like this? It's because he's making very clear something. He's not talking about some kind of relationship with these women. He's talking about sex. Objectified, depersonalized sex. Now, we use the word concubine because basically what the practice is all about. Okay? Concubines, in, in the ancient world, if you, had, if, you were, if you were loaded, especially if you were royalty, you had your wife, you probably had wives, Okay? And they were there to produce heirs for you. And then you had this other room, or wing, or house. And that room was filled of, with, with other kinds of women. Your concubines. They were your playthings. They were your toys. Okay? That's what this is about. Now, today we communicate the same thing with something like um, prostitution or pornography, or hooking up at a party, or sexual conquest in general. What he's talking about is using another person for your own pleasure. And the only way to really communicate that, to really get at what's actually going on, is to describe a person, not using personal language, but using parts language. That's all they are to you. Just a collection of parts. Now, some of us right now think we're immune to this, Right? Because you're married. Maybe you're married and you don't even like, 
I don't look at porn. Good, great. As a matter of fact, yeah, fantastic. That's good. However, can I tell you this? You can seek to find meaning in sex just as easily with your spouse as you can from outside. You can easily objectify your spouse into an object to be used to satisfy you. And that's the heart issue that the teacher is trying to get at here. When we use another person as a collection of parts to satisfy our desires. Now, before we get to the end of this list, I need to lay out a warning. Because some of us think that none of these things apply to us, right? Because, look, Rick, I don't have any money. Maybe I don't have a spouse. I certainly don't have any, uh, any like, stuff. I got nothing, right? Uh, look, you don't necessarily have to have all these things to be finding meaning in them. That's, the, that's the, the, the funny thing about the Bible. The Bible talks about things as problems that, aren't nece- that don't start in, in outward things. They start in here. If you constantly think about these things, if you daydream what it would be like to have stuff, have a really big bank account, take really good vacations all the time, have cosmic shaking sex. Like if you're thinking about that a lot, if you're daydreaming about that, the issue is that you are believing that your meaning will come through those things. Okay? Now that deals with the actual pursuit. Let's look at the shape of the promise. I want to note two things here. Look down at verse 10 first because he says this. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep it from them. And in fact, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Okay, do you get the picture here? Get the picture of what he's driving at? The teacher is saying, whatever I wanted, I got it. Can you imagine that? Some of us are like, uh-huh, that'd be great. You know, like, this is what, this is like, this is what I want out of life. I know, right? Like, this is what our culture tells us, this is it. If you could just have whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. The whole point in this is the concept of desire. I had a desire and I pursued it. And this is so important because our, con- our culture has convinced us that any desire that comes up in us should be pursued. And if you don't pursue it, you're not going to truly be human. Like, you know, I, I mean, we... We cannot, in our culture, think that we are actually human if we deny our desires, right? Why? Because of the autonomous pursuit of individual happiness. There is nothing more important to us as a culture. And especially today, we hear it in regards to our sexuality. I have a desire. Maybe I've had it as long as I can remember. And saying no to it is part and parcel to denying my humanity. You follow me? This is what we think. And what this guy is saying is, I did that. I did that. That was me. I chased it. And I had the means to actually accomplish it. And I did it. The shape is clearer, though, if we look to a consistent refrain in here. Did you notice how many times the phrase, for myself, was used? Just look in that list that he says. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I made myself pools. Then that's not even counting all the me's and the I's. Like this, this entire section is driven by the idea of me, by my. And this is important because the pursuit of pleasure, listen to me, the pursuit of pleasure, the drive to satisfy desire is inherently selfish. 
It can't be anything but that. It's inherently selfish because the pleasure is always for me. It's always for me. If I'm seeking meaning and pleasure, it's my pleasure, the satisfaction of my desires, my drives, my wants. And I will use whatever I need, and what, whether, whether, whether whatever I need is stuff or people, I will use whatever it is to make sure that I am satisfied. The promise of pleasure is shaped indelibly, indelibly by selfishness. Lastly, let's look specifically at the promise, because we miss this. But I don't think the original readers would have. Look at right in the middle of this passage, right? We read verses 1 through 11, right? So if you look smack in the middle, it's verse 5. He says this, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Then he talks about the pools that water it. Now, first off, that word parks there, that's, that's an interesting word. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a Persian loan word. We're like, huh? Okay, loan words are like words from other, other languages that we use, like cul-de-sac. Uh, cul-de-sac? Not English, okay, or enchilada, okay? These are, not, these are not English words. They are loan words that we now use, and we use uh, all the time. This Persian word is the, is the word paradeza. We have that word in our vocabulary, too. We still use a Persian loan word. It's the word paradise. Paradise. And so he talks about making paradise and then about putting all kinds of trees in it, trees that are good for eating. And then he talks about pools of water that he makes to water them. Now, someone who is well steeped in the Old Testament, which would have been the people who first read this, would have recognized an echo there. He's echoing Genesis 2, verses 9 and 10. You can look it up later, okay? Because in Genesis 2, verses 9 and 10, it's talking about how God created the Garden of Eden. And in it, he put in all these trees that were good for eating. They were beautiful fruit trees. And then he made, he made these rivers and streams to water them all. It's the exact same language. And so right smack in the middle of the section on, on pleasure is the teacher saying he's trying to recreate paradise. Why? Well, we need to understand how the story of the Bible lays out. Because you see, in the story of Scripture, I know most of us, we were raised thinking this is just a bunch of rules, right? This is, this is not a bunch of rules. Are there rules in it? Yeah. But that's not what this is. Primarily, this is a story. And in the story that it tells, it, it talks about humanity as made for Eden. That's what we were made for. We were created and put in Eden. And the Bible says that humanity was created and placed in that garden. We were placed there to be in relationship with God, in a dependent relationship with Him, and to have authority over God's world. And in that authority to seek to see the, the rule of God, God's, God's will to be done all over the earth, not just in the garden, but to spread the garden throughout all of the world, right? It was a life full of meaning. And that meaning was defined by the one that we were made for. But we didn't like that very much. In time, the idea of depending on another person, depending on an ultimate person especially, that didn't work out so well. And so in time, we were fooled into thinking that we could be independent of him, that we could create meaning for ourselves. And so we betrayed him because we thought we could be like him. We turned from him. And this betrayal, the Bible calls sin, okay? It's not so much breaking a rule as it is a relationship. Sin in the Bible is about breaking a heart. It's about breaking the heart of God. 
And we, when we betrayed God, it brought guilt, right? Of course it did. All betrayals bring guilt. You've been betrayed. I've been betrayed. We know what it's like. It brings guilt. We know that, okay? We were liable then to bear the consequences of our betrayal, of our sin. And that's, that's where the language of judgment comes in with the Bible, okay? Some of us are very familiar with that. Others of us wish we weren't as familiar with that. But especially the most awful example being hell, right? But two other things happen. And these are the things that we often forget or at least miss, we need to really grasp. The Bible says that when we betrayed God, that our hearts fundamentally changed. Right? You and I think that our problem is primarily behavioral, right? If I just, if I just do a little better, things will be all right. If, if I just do better than like 50% of the people of the world, then I'm okay. Okay? If it were a race, right? We, we tend to think not that our race is against a, a record, Right? There, listen, there's a big difference between, between trying to outrun a world record and trying to outrun a bear. Right? You, outrun a, you don't have to outrun the bear. You outrun the dude next to you. Right? As long as you outrun him, bear's going to eat him, and you get off scot-free. That's the way we think things are with the Lord, but it's not, the way that, like, it's not like that. It's more like trying to get a world record. How would you feel if someone lined you up next to Usain Bolt? Go for it. See how you're doing. They're like... That dude, that dude can run that race faster than I can get off the block. Like, I'm just, uh, he's done. Like, what, what just happened here? Okay? It's the difference between, between racing against a standard and outrunning everyone else. The Bible says that our problem is not that we just need to be better than half of the people that are there. Our problem is in our hearts. It's not behavioral. In other words, you and I betray God because we're traitors. We're not traitors because we betray God. It's a very important distinction. So our hearts fundamentally changed. But the last thing that happened is that, you and, that we were exiled from the garden. The garden was no longer the place where we lived. We were made for his presence, but we wanted to be rid of him. And so God, like he tends to do, gave us what we wanted. Some of, you are very, some of you in this room are, are really familiar with the Bible, right? Romans 1. We tend to think Romans 1, this great, this great passage of how God's judgment, da-da-da. Do you notice that the judgment that God gives in Romans 1 is he lets you do what you really want. It says he gave them over to their desires. That's his judgment. That's what happened in the garden. We said, God, I don't need you. I don't want to be near you. He says, okay, there, there's the door. And we walked through it. Great. Don't need you anyway. I'll be fine on my own. Really. How about I give you some clothes? Because it's kind of cold out there. All right, but I don't need them. You know, it's that, that kind of thing. Now, did you see, do you see now why this is placed here? If you and I were made for a place, but then chose to leave that place, we will always be thinking that we are not home. Something is not right. And so right in the middle of this passage on pleasure and, and the seeking of pleasure, it says that the, this guy began making for himself the garden. I'll just build my own. I don't need yours. I'll build my own. He is trying to get back to the garden through pleasure. But in the end, his answer is that it was all meaningless, a striving after the wind, that it didn't profit him anything. It didn't profit him. It didn't work. And some of you are like, why didn't it work? You know why it didn't work. Because you know what happens when you, you get that hit. 
it fades. It goes away. And after time, you need more and more of it to work. And I don't care whether you're talking about, like, you're hearing that and some of you are thinking, well, I don't do drugs. I'm not just talking about drugs. I'm talking about, I'm talking about not substances, but all of those things that he's talking about. It's never enough. There's no lasting gain. We work and work and chase and chase thinking we can get to the garden. But ultimately, it's chasing after the wind. It's trying to grab that smoke ring. Got nothing. It's gone. Now, let me bring this home to us in two ways this morning. First, I want to talk about looking for things in all the wrong places. Why do we pursue pleasure? For relief? I mean, that's my normal one, right? For relief, like, life is hard, man. I, I just want to check out for a little bit. I just want to be absent from things. I just need the world to go away for a minute, okay? Because it's desirable? Sure, look. Pleasure is called pleasure for a reason. Okay? It's desirable. We want it. Maybe because we feel entitled. Look, this is a big one for those of us who are more addictive in the way we approach life. I've been a good boy this week. I deserve it. Or, that person was really mean to me. I deserve it. Or, my clothes fit today. I deserve it. Like, we come up with a million different reasons of I deserve. You'd be amazed at how many ways we can come up with it. What this passage helps us to see, though, is that what we are all trying to do is recapture Eden. The pursuit of pleasure for meaning is just another way of trying to make the world right on our own. But there are two ways that we can do this. One is the, the constant pursuit, the seeking of pleasure. Now, that's the one he talks about here. We get that. That seems, that seems okay, I, maybe you can get that one. That, that seems normal. But the other one is just as true, and that is seeing pleasure as bad. Right? You can be trying to search for meaning from pleasure by seeing it as bad. And you're like, how does that work? Listen to me. <laughs> uh, here it is. You can be enslaved to something in a couple of different ways. One is by just chasing with all your might, and one is by spending all your might trying to avoid it. Either way, you are enslaved by it. Right? Either your attention is, i got to get this thing, or your attention is, I can't have this thing. But either way, it's this thing that is right in the middle of your mind and your heart. It becomes the center of who you are. If you think pleasure is bad and you use all of your effort to avoid it, you still think it defines your meaning. You just think the absence of it defines your meaning. The teacher never says, listen to me, the teacher never says that pleasure is bad. In verse 10, as a matter of fact, he calls it his reward. It's his reward. It's good. But it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Listen to me. The garden was not the pleasure of Eden. The garden wasn't the pleasure of Eden. Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says, he says this, there is joy in your presence, God, eternal pleasures at your right hand. In other words, what made Eden delightful, what made it pleasurable was not the fruit. It was the presence of the God that we were made for. It was the presence of the God that we were made for. In other words, you can't get back to God through pleasure. 
You, you can't do it. What keeps us from Eden is not that we don't have enough money or sex or stuff or shrubbery, right? What keeps us from Eden is, is that we're not reconciled to God. We're not reconciled to God. But thankfully, God wasn't content with our being apart from him, right? Because if we're not reconciled to God, and our problem isn't just our behaviors, but our hearts, everyone in this room, everyone in this world is done. We're done. We got nothing. But God was not content with that. Right as we were leaving the garden, God promised to make things right. He promised to rescue us from our prison of independence. And friends, this is why Jesus came. I know most of us believe that Jesus came to give us a few new rules, to show us what real care for the poor was like, as if the Old Testament said nothing about it. Quite frankly, Jesus is just repeating most of the stuff that already was said, okay? So... It, we think that, that Jesus came to show us an example of how to, how to follow him to make our lives really nice. Because Jesus, wasn't he just really nice? No. I mean, dude got in people's faces. Why did he come? Because, because God had to rescue us. I know that most of us think something different because every, every other world religion says something like, um, do this. Follow these steps, this, this tenfold path, these pillars, uh, this, this, uh, follow this guru or, or this self-help book, and you will, you will make your way back to God. But the Bible says that this idea can never help you because you can never change your heart. So instead, Jesus, in Jesus, God came to you. He came to me. He lived that life of perfect dependence and obedience to God that we were made for, and he died to bear the weight of our betrayal. In other words, on the cross, what what does he cry out on the cross? God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the exile that you and I earned. He bore that. He carried it on his own body. He was exiled for us so that we need not be. The question is not how can you get back to God? You can't. I can't. We can't. We're a mess. We're a hot mess. And there's nothing that's going to fix it. The question is, will you receive the gift of rescue that God has come to you to give? Look, you can put your your trust, you can put your faith in your search for pleasure, your own selfish attempts to make your personal world right. Right? Population me. That's a great little song Jason introduced me to. That's what our life is like when we're pursuing pleasure. It's just population me. But the reality is it'll never work. You can do that, or you can place your faith in Christ. The reality is, though, listen to me. Some of you you are like, I don't believe a lick of that. I get it, okay? I get it. Listen to me. If you you choose to go, look, all I need to do is set my sights on a little more money, or, you know what, a little more of just getting mine. Everything's going to be okay. Can I tell you, you're setting the bar way too low. It's not that... It's not that Christianity is telling you, man, you you are expecting too much out of life. I'm telling you, the scripture says you are expecting way too little. Way too little. Our problem is not that we don't have enough pleasure. It is that pleasure can't give us the meaning we are looking for. Only a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus can. Okay? But lastly, we, we have to see how pleasure points beyond. What does pleasure do? Um, a lot of thinkers will tell you that what pleasure actually does is it gives us a taste of the transcendent. 
it, it's somehow, you, and you know what that's like. I, let, me, let me put it on its most kind of almost silly. When you have had like that perfect meal, and you put that in your mouth, and a mix of flavors goes in, it's like, mmm, right? Mmm. Okay? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and it's like, you, phew, transcendence. You're like, transcendence over a steak. I know, but really, seriously. But pleasure gives us a taste of the transcendent. And it is meant to be received with thankfulness. But this is where the gospel comes in. This is where the gospel of Jesus comes in. If you are expecting pleasure, that stake, to be your transcendence, you will never be pleased. Because it will always fade. It will always fade. That stake eventually becomes something else, if you know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? It can't last. And you know this. Listen to me. If you are stuck this morning chasing food or alcohol or pornography or sex or toys because you think they will satisfy you, they can't. And I know they can't. Because I, like everyone else in this room, have tried it. Those experiences will always fade. They will always disappoint. They cannot deliver on their promises because they are not the God that you actually hunger for. But... Here's the important thing. And, and some of you have been Christians for a long time. This is the section you need to listen to. Okay, so clue back in. If you have trusted in Christ and tasted a relationship with God, which is the transcendence you hunger for, then you are actually free to enjoy the good things that God gives. You are free to enjoy them. Whether those are food, whether those are drink, the money, sex within marriage, you are, you are free to receive them with thankfulness. That's what that talk of reward is about. Listen, reward isn't something you earn. It's, it's kind of a gift. Like, I got a reward for doing, for doing X, Y, and Z. Well, that doesn't really make any sense why that. You, you, you find this kitty and you call a phone number and you get like, you get a Ben Franklin. Like, really? Wow, that, it's, it's not a wage, it's a gift. It's a gift. That pleasure is still a gift. And you are only free to receive it as a gift if you aren't putting all of your eggs in its basket. Because if you are, then it will disappoint you and you're never free. You've got to get more. But if you've gotten what you're looking for from Jesus, then you can receive it with thankfulness. If you have trusted in Christ as your ultimate pleasure, then pleasure can return to being good instead of ultimate. If not, you will, you will always be enslaved to the next hit. Always. Now, before I close, I want to get really practical. I know we're going a little long, so let me do this quick. I've made this sound really easy, right? Really, really easy. It is not. It is not. Um, because some of us in this room are beyond chasing. We're beyond chasing pleasure. We're just flat-out addicted. We're flat out addicted. Addiction is not a disease in the medical sense, like cancer. You can't treat it with medicine, okay? It is a behavior pattern that you are enslaved to, that you feel powerless to change, that controls your life, and that you pursue even in spite of negative consequences you know will happen, okay? Maybe you've never defined it that way before. That's what it is. Easily the most common behaviors today in this vein uh, quite frankly, are the use of internet pornography, both with men and women. If you are stuck in something this morning, whether it's that or something else, I need you to listen really close. God raised Jesus from the dead. 
He can work to conquer your addiction. But you've got to come clean. You've got to come clean. I know it's hard. Trust me. Trust me. I know it's hard. I've had to deal with my own issues there. All right? But you've got to come clean. Come talk to me. Talk to Jason. Talk to Dan. Talk to your small group leader. But now is the time. The grace of God in Jesus is enough. But we need, to, we need help in experiencing it and help in working it into our hearts. It's not as easy as, okay, I'm done. Now's the time, guys. All right, let me close. The shame of it is poor Edmund never did get any more Turkish delight, right? He wanted it. He never got any more. He's stuck in a prison. Uh, the promise never really filled him. Because the reality is, is that he was made for more. More than a gel-filled or a gel-shaped nut-filled candy. He was made for the God who created us. And in Christ lived, died, and rose again to redeem us, just as you are and just as I am. Let's turn and find our meaning there. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we ask that you would drive the gospel into our hearts no matter where we're at this morning. Some of us have never trusted in Jesus. Uh, we're just checking this thing out. This probably all sounds crazy to us. We, we need you to open our hearts to see your wisdom in it. Others of us have so pursued other things that we are uh, we're blinded to it. We need you to, again, rescue us. And others of us just need, need to wake up because we are stuck on pursuing things that cannot fill us. Would you work that we might find meaning in you, the one that we were made to have our meeting in. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Listen.